0: Now, last week we had the pleasure of hearing from Nick, and this week we have the honor and the privilege of hearing from one of our very own. Um, you know her well. She's up here every week, and she's sweet and bubbly and vivacious. And um, not only that, you guys, but she is wicked smart. Um, she has graduated from the University of St. Thomas from their School of Law. My goodness, I know. She's also about to graduate this spring from Bethel Seminary. She is just a wonder. So please help me in welcoming Miss Vanessa Williams to speak to us today. Thank you so much, Shauna. Oh, was such like, a nice welcoming nice welcoming introduction. So hello. <laughs> it is good to see all of you. Um, so I have to start off my sermon, actually, with a confession. I know, I see a little nervous, nervousness in the crowd. Um, yeah, I have to confess to you that this morning, um, when I left, I forgot my sermon notes. I actually, you know, I was leaving the house, I was like, okay, let's see. I was like, okay, I got my tea, check, got myself, that's everything I need, I'm ready to go, <laughs> So I keep here without sermon notes, so we just have to hope that I remember what it is that I was going to say today and hope it all goes well. So that's just kind of me. I, I was like, I do this stuff. I do this stuff. But anyway, hello. For today, we are going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking in Matthew chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus. That's going to be our focus. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up there. But I have to tell you, we're not actually going to start there. See, as I was preparing for today, it occurred to me that reading the story of the temptation of Jesus is a lot like reading a book that's a part of a series. When books are in a series, you can't read them out of order because the books build on each other, and each subsequent book assumes that you know what happened in previous books. It's kind of like this. Here's a little secret. Don't tell anyone. One of my favorite books, favorite fiction books, is The Lost World. Not the classic 1912 book by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm talking about the sequel to Jurassic Park. <laughs> as you may recall, Jurassic Park is about genetically engineered prehistoric plants and animals that are kept on an island. And it is awesome because there are scientists, mathematicians, dinosaurs. Like, I'm super into it. Though, as I told people last service, I actually have had several stress dreams with dinosaurs involved. I think there might be a connection. But I love this book, I love The Lost World, it's really fun but it is the sequel, so it builds on characters, themes, ideas that are initially presented in Jurassic Park, so you can't read it without reading Jurassic Park first. The Temptation of Jesus is similar in the sense that there are actually two other stories of temptation and testing that happen earlier in the Bible that lead up to this one, which is why we can think of The Temptation of Jesus as being the third story in a trilogy of temptation and testing, which is why our sermon for today is called the Temptation and Testing Trilogy. And yes, that is very difficult to say quickly. I had to practice that. <laughs> the Temptation and Testing Trilogy. This means that we have to know what those two other stories are. We first need to know about the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's our first story in our trilogy. Our second story is the testing of Israel in the desert. After we get those two down, we can get to our third one with Jesus. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Please pray with me. And then we're just going to dive right into this stuff. Okay? Okay. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your presence here today. Lord, I thank you for bringing everyone here safely. Lord, we just pray that during this time, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. God, open up our eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we want to hear a message from you. Lord, I know this is not about me. This is all about you. And so, God, I submit this time to you. And, Lord, we're just ready to hear from you, to be transformed by you. God, we want more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start our trilogy. Our trilogy opens up in Genesis. As we know, Genesis starts with saying that in the beginning, God created, and it was awesome. Or in the words of the Bible, it was good. And it was good because everything was the way that God designed it to be. All of creation was in harmony with each other and with God. And the people loved God and they obeyed him. And God loved them and provided them with everything that they needed. God also gave the people, Adam and Eve, authority. He told them, you guys are going to be in charge of the rest of creation. God also set up boundaries, boundaries to help protect the creation. So one of the boundaries he sets up is regarding the people's nourishment. He tells the people, you can eat from any of the trees in this garden, except for that one, because if you do, you'll die well, that's simple enough. So one day when Adam and Eve are in the garden, just hanging out, doing what they do, Satan comes along. What we have to know about Satan is that he always has one intent in mind. His intent is to break the relationship between people and God. So that's his plan here. Satan walks up to Adam and Eve and goes, did God really tell you that you can't eat from any of the trees in this garden? And then Eve says, oh, no, 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 no. You see, we just can't eat from that one tree. If we touch that tree, we'll die. Satan says, oh, really? Really, God said that to you? Well, you won't die. In fact, if you eat from the fruit of that tree, you'll become like God. Ooh, well, that sounds very interesting to Adam and Eve. Quite tempting. Let's pause here for a second. We have to remember that Adam and Eve are already like God. God. Do you recall? They were made in the image and likeness of God. But often when we are tempted, we're not thinking about the bigger picture. We get very narrowly focused. And so that's one of the reasons why temptation can be so dangerous for us. Okay, let's go back to our story. So Adam and Eve are are deliberating. Well, wow, we would really like to be more like God, but God said not to eat from that tree. What should we do? Well, Eve looks at the fruit on the tree. She evaluates it, and she determines that Eating from the fruit of this tree will be good for gaining wisdom. So Adam and Eve decide together to eat the fruit from the tree. And when they do this, sin enters the world. And it corrupts the entire creation. The whole world is broken. So this first instance of temptation does not turn out so well for creation. Now, at this point, God could have given up. He could have said, well, that whole creation thing really didn't work out so well. (laughs) It's <laughs> kind of like this time when I, I made this carrot souffle thing. I don't know if any of you guys like baking, but sometimes I bake. And so, you know, I followed the recipe, put this thing in the oven. And dude, when I took it out, it was so nasty. Like, I had to throw it out. I threw it away. I was like, too bad, carrots. You didn't work out. I'm going to go make something different. God could have said, you know what? This creation that really didn't work out. I'll see you later. I'm going to go make something different. But God's not like that, Thank goodness. So when sin entered the world, it was really nasty. But instead of walking away, God decides to start a rescue mission. He says, well, he sort of rolls up his almighty sleeves and says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with just one person. And I'll build a relationship with that one person. And from that one person, I'll create a family. And I'll have a relationship with all the people in that family. From that family, I'll create a nation. And I will have a relationship with all the people in that nation and I will call that nation Israel and I will be faithful to them and I'll teach them to be faithful and I will bless them and when other nations other people see this they will be intrigued when they see this love they'll be curious and they'll be drawn into it and eventually all people everyone in the entire world will be drawn back into covenantal relationship with me it's a good plan so God chooses Abraham, not because Abraham was especially qualified. In fact, at this point in time, Abraham was still worshiping other gods. But God says to him, Abraham, I choose you. Work with me here. Be a part of my rescue mission. So Abraham, Abraham has to let go of his old way of life, and he comes into a covenantal relationship with God. And God grows Abraham's family, and they become the nation of Israel. So things are looking pretty good here. It's like, all right, things are on track with the rescue mission. There are some challenges. For one thing, the people of Israel become slaves in Egypt. This is not going to work out so well because as slaves, they can't practice their faith and they start forgetting who God is and what the mission is. But God doesn't give up. God has a plan. This is where the second story in our temptation and testing trilogy begins. God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. But the people still aren't ready yet to jump into the mission. Their hearts aren't ready. So God says, I can work with this. I will test their hearts. And through testing, they will learn discipline. They will learn to trust me. And they will grow faithful hearts that are ready to take on their purpose. So God leads them out of Egypt and into the desert to be tested for 40 years. Now, I can just tell you right from the beginning, it doesn't go so well. In fact, time and time again, Israel fails to be faithful. But there are actually three different things that happen in the desert that we specifically need to know about. First of all, the people of Israel refuse to trust God for food. God says, look, I know you guys are in the desert. I know there's not a lot of food out here, but trust me, I'll provide for you. But the people don't trust him. They disobey him. And when God provides for them, they complain about it, and they say it was better when they were slaves in Egypt. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I get to this point in Exodus, I'm like, come on, are you serious, Israel? Like, Really? Like if anybody knows about good food, it's probably God. Like He invented food. He invented it. Like you guys are gonna say it was better when you were slaves, but God. So God's much more patient than I am. And so God continues to work with the people, but it gets worse. The people do something called testing God. And what this is is basically the people refuse to trust God to keep His promises and fulfill them in His good timing. So instead of waiting for God to fulfill His promises, the people of Israel accuse God. They say. God said he cared about us, but really, he just let us out here in this desert so we would die of thirst. It's completely absurd. God has been taking care of them this whole time. But they don't want to wait and let God fulfill his promises to them. They're trying to manipulate God and make him do what they want him to do right now, make him prove himself, prove that he will keep his promises to them. It gets even worse. The people of Israel also bow down to idols and worship other gods in the desert, completely betraying God. So it ends up being a really rough 40 years in the desert. And it doesn't get much better afterwards either. Now at this point, God again could have given up. He could have said, whoa, I really tried with these people. Like there was the whole Adam and Eve thing and that didn't work out. And now I'm working with these people for 40 years in a desert. This isn't going so well. Like I really tried to live in relationship with humanity, but this just isn't going to work out. I'm just going to be done with it. But God is patient and God is persistent. And so God doesn't give up. Instead, God says, I'm sticking with this rescue mission, but it's time for something new. So God tells the people through the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Joel, he says through them to the people, I'm not done with my mission. I still want to be in a relationship with Israel and all the rest of the people in the world. So I promise, I promise that I am going to send a Messiah and the Messiah will be able to finish the mission. He will be able to fulfill all of the promises. And now we enter the New Testament and the third story in our trilogy. In the New Testament, God sends Jesus. And Jesus lets go of his divine power as a second person of the Trinity and becomes a human being. As a human being, he's born, he grows up, he's baptized, and right before he starts his ministry, right before he takes on his part in the rescue mission, God leads Jesus into the desert to be tested for 40 days. Now, this should sound familiar to us. Israel was also led into the desert by God to be tested for 40 years, before they took on their part of the, of the rescue mission. So the parallel here is very, very intentional. Jesus is about to be tested and tempted in the same way that Israel was. Now, at the end of 40 days, Jesus is getting pretty hungry because he's been fasting. Fasting was a fairly common practice in the ancient world. What it basically is is, so he was not eating food, but he was drinking water. And the idea is that by setting aside physical needs, which are constantly distracting us, we can focus in more on what's happening spiritually. And we know that in this particular instance, it is God himself who led Jesus into the desert and led Jesus to fast. So Jesus is doing this in obedience to God. But, as I said before, he let go of his divine power, so he feels the same limitations that we do. So he's hungry and he's tired. And it is at this point, when Jesus is physically exhausted, hungry, alone in the desert, it is at this point that Satan is bold enough to make his reappearance. So... Satan comes up to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, the Messiah, then speak, tell these stones to become bread. I know you're hungry. How are you going to save the whole world? You can't even take care of your own hunger. Eat something, feed yourself, make bread out of these stones. Jesus replies to this temptation by saying, "'People do not live on bread alone, "'but on every word that comes from the mouth of God.'" Let's pause here for a second. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, so it's good for us to know a little bit about that book. Deuteronomy is an Old Testament book that recalls the history of Israel, and Jesus is actually quoting from the part where Israel did not trust God for food. So Jesus is being very intentional here. He's drawing on this parallel, and he's saying, "'Yeah, this actually happened before, This happened before where God's people were tested about food, but this time it's different because I am going to trust in the word of God. So no, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread. I'm not going to end the fast. I'm not going to leave the desert until God says so. Satan says, fine. Fine, you want to quote scripture? We'll quote scripture. We'll go there. Come with me, Jesus. Let's go to the temple. I'll show you that I know the Bible just as well as you do. So they go to the temple. Satan has Jesus stand on the pinnacle. Now, the pinnacle is not a specific architectural feature. It's not like a steeple um, on a church or something like that. Instead, it was most likely a high-up corner on the outer wall. So Jesus is standing up in this precarious position at the temple, and Satan says to him, If you are the Messiah, Son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written that God will command his angels concerning you, and that they will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike a stone. Check it out, Jesus. Psalm 91. Told you. Told you I know the Bible, too. So do it. Throw yourself down. Let's test and see if God will keep his promises. Jesus replies to this temptation by saying, No, it is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is once again quoting from Deuteronomy. He's once again identifying with Israel and drawing on this parallel and saying, this happened before. This happened before where God's people um, tested God, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust and obey the word of God. So no, I'm not going to throw myself off the temple. I am not going to test God. And Jesus is also making a very astute exegetical point here. He's saying to Satan, your hermeneutics are bad. He's saying the interpretation that you are suggesting is incorrect because you are taking that psalm out of context. Yes, Psalm 91 does say that when God's people are in danger, God will save them, God will rescue them, absolutely. But it does not say that you should go out looking for danger and test and see if God will keep his promises. So you don't throw yourself off a building to test and see if Psalm 91 is correct. That is an inappropriate use of those Bible verses. (laughs) (laughs) so satan says fine fine let's just get down to business shall we so satan takes jesus up a tall mountain and he has jesus stand up there and he shows him through a vision all the kingdoms of the world and satan says take a look jesus look at all those kingdoms all those people those people you love people you came here to save, I know that's why you're here. I can give that to you. It's what you want, isn't it? Think about it. Think about all the good you could do. You could bring peace to all of these different places. You could establish justice. You could end oppression. You can have all of that. You can have that right now. I will give it to you. Think about it. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Hmm. Let's pause here for a second. We really need to appreciate sort of the level of this temptation. Remember again that Jesus has let go of his power as God. He faces the same limitations that we do. And so we need to know that this had to be painfully, truly tempting for Jesus. This was his mission, to come here and to save people. And Satan is offering all of it to him in an instant. You can have it right now. No suffering, no waiting, no ambiguity, no pain, no cross. All of it right now, that had to be tempting. Let's go back to our story. Well, Jesus is steadfast, and he replies to this temptation by again recalling Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, No. No, I'm not going to take you up on your offer because I am going to trust in the word of God. And even if I don't understand everything that God has told me, even if there's suffering, pain, difficulty, I am going to trust in the way that God has provided for me. And it says in the word of God that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So no, Satan, I'm not interested in your offer. You can feel free to leave now. (laughs) So... So Satan leaves, Jesus starts his ministry, and our trilogy comes to a close. What can we learn from these stories? What can we learn from our trilogy? I think we can learn a lot, actually. But maybe the first thing that we can learn or just acknowledge is the fact that temptation and testing is a part of life. As Christians, we will face temptation and testing whether or not we like it. It's kind of like that snowstorm we had last week. I cannot tell you how much I did not want that snowstorm to happen. Like, I'm really anti snowstorm, I'm so against it. I really did not want it to happen. And when it happened, I was like, I hate this so much, like, I just want to leave this state forever. But I couldn't leave the state because there was a snowstorm. (laughs) Yeah. Temptation and testing are similar. Regardless of how we feel about it, even if we want to avoid it, it will happen. It will occur. And so, therefore, it is important for us as Christians not to try to hide from it, but to say, this is going to happen, so let's prepare for it. Let's, instead of hiding from temptation and testing, let's see this as when it comes our way as an opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness. Let's say that this can be an opportunity for us to say, no, Satan, actually, I'm not interested in your offer. Let's prepare for that kind of a response, okay? So, how do we do this? How do we prepare for temptation and testing that comes our way? Well, I think there's a few different ways. And when I was thinking about this sermon, I went back to Deuteronomy, that book that Jesus kept referencing. Because in Deuteronomy, God tells his people, I want you to be faithful. So here's how you can be faithful to me. Now, Deuteronomy is 34 chapters long. So we're not going to go through the whole thing. But (laughs) I think there are three things in particular that at least set up a foundation, some of the basics for how we can learn to grow in our faithfulness towards God. So those three things are remembering the past, being obedient in the present, and loving the Lord our God with all our heart. Those three things. (laughs) So I want to talk about these in order. Let's start with the first one, remembering the past. Why do we need to remember the past? It says in Deuteronomy that God tells his people, remember the past. Remember what the Lord has done. And don't just remember what has happened to you personally. Also remember who came before you. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what the Lord has done. And tell your children about it. And have them tell their children about it. Don't let a generation go by without knowing what the Lord has done. Why is this so important? Well, quite frankly... It's very difficult to make good decisions, good choices in the present, if we don't know about the past. Now, that's true for every area of our our lives, but that's especially true for our faith. We have to know about who came before us. And when we know about who came before us, those stories inform us, they give us good warnings, they encourage us. So we need to know about the past. And the story of our faith, the past of our faith, is found in the Bible, which means we need to know about our Bibles. But... I'm guessing that there's got to be at least one person, one person here or one person listening through podcasts who's thinking, oh, but Vanessa, the Bible is boring. Do we really have to? Let me tell you about my experience with this. So when I was in high school, I was a Christian. I loved God. I was totally on board with everything. But when I would pull out my Bible, I was, like, instantly tired. I was like, oh. (laughs) Like, oh. It was like, wow, this... This is definitely a cure for insomnia. Like, somebody alert the scientific American. We found it. Um, <laughs> but to be honest with you, this created a kind of dissonance in me. I didn't really like this um, because I said that I believed everything that was in the Bible, and yet I couldn't take the time to read it. And when I did, I didn't really enjoy it. Like, something about that just didn't feel right. And so what, what I did was I just prayed about it. I said to God, um, Hi, God. So, sorry to tell you this, but uh, the Bible's kind of boring, and um, I don't want to feel that way when I read it. I was like, I know this is your word, so please help me to experience something different when I read it. And quite frankly, almost immediately, I started noticing something different. I really started to enjoy it. I was diving into the stories, reading them. I was reading them every night. I was just like, this is great, until I got to Leviticus. have any of you tried to read Leviticus? Are you kidding me? Like, who wrote that, really? and thought we'd want to read about it. <laughs> and not just Leviticus, I mean other stories in the Bible of when I would read the prophets or even Paul's New Testament letters. First of all, I didn't even know that those were supposed to be letters. And then even once I did, I was like, I, don't, I have no idea what he's talking about or who he's talking to or why. So it's at times like those that it is helpful for us to invest in other resources that can help us understand the Bible better. Because here's the thing. This was written in a different time period. There were different genres. There was a different historical cultural context. There are a lot of things and there's a lot of information that we just don't know about just because of the time period that we live in. That's not a bad thing. That just means we have to put in a little bit of extra effort. So there are a lot of resources out there that can help us to understand these different things, to put context to the Bible, and help us to be able to read those stories. Because if we don't have that additional context, reading the Bible can feel like you're reading something in another language. And it's really hard to be transformed by something that you're not comprehending. So here's one of the books that I recommend people try getting. Um, It's a book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. This is by the same people who wrote How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, another great book. Um, their last names are Fee and Stewart. And what I read about, or what I like about, um, How to Read the Bible Book by Book is that it actually is set up in order of each book of the Bible. So it starts with Genesis and there's information on each one in order. I just personally found that really helpful because no matter what book of the Bible I'm studying, it's very easy to access the information on it. So that's one that I really like. Another thing that I always recommend to people is that try having a map with you while you're reading the Bible. Um, Because the people are going all different places, and it's really hard for that to have meaning to us if we don't know where those places are. So let me just give you an example. If I told you guys right now that I went to Dallas, Texas, that would immediately, you guys would immediately have context for that. You'd know, okay, that's in the South, it's hot, that's a big state. You could immediately put a picture to it. Or if I said I went to New York City, totally different picture. So it has meaning to us. Places have meaning, and they add context. So it's really helpful when we're reading the Bible and we see, oh, this person went to Damascus. Okay, well, where is Damascus? What does that mean? Okay, here it is. It's really, really helpful to be able to do. Um, You can buy maps. You can buy actually really awesome maps, but if you don't want to invest in that, you can also Google it. That's another great option for you. Last thing that I'll say about reading the Bible is I want to encourage and invite you guys to be creative about how you learn the Bible. Um, For some people, it's going to be reading a chapter every night. If that works for you, that's great. That's awesome. Please do that. But for a lot of people, that doesn't work. So like one of my friends, he listens to the Bible on his way to work in the car. He has a CD. He pops it in. He just listens in. Other people, you know, you really want to learn more socially, so maybe you get together with a group of friends, you have coffee, you study the same book, and you get to talk about it. However you want to do it, whatever makes sense to you, whatever works for you, I want to encourage and invite you guys to go out and do it. I encourage you to be creative. Do whatever it is that you need to do, because it doesn't matter how we're doing it. What it matters is that we're doing it. So I just really want to invite you guys to just do what makes sense to you, do what works for you, do what's helpful for you. So we need to remember the past. That's our first thing. Remembering the past. Remembering the stories of the people who came before us. The second thing that we need to do is be obedient in the present. Now, I'll tell you that any preacher who knows that they have to say something about obedience is a little bit nervous. Because we all know that most people have a very visceral, negative reaction to the idea of obedience. It's like, I don't want to be obedient. I want to be free. And that's great. Freedom is a really good thing. So here's what we need to know. We need to know that when we are living under the reign of God, we are more free than we could ever be. And when we disobey God, when we sin, sin binds us up. We're not free like that. So we have to remember, who is it that we're being obedient to? God is not arbitrary. God is not a tyrant. Not only that, but God is the almighty omniscient creator. And so if anybody has a you know, good perspective on things and would probably know what we should or shouldn't be doing, it would probably be God. So, and I don't say that to be, um, you know, ridiculing or harsh or anything like that, but sometimes it's like we have to step back and remember, like, oh, yeah, it is God that I'm being obedient to. It's not, you know, the boss I used to have who was really nasty or that other person who had authority over me who, you know, treated me poorly. It's it's not those people. It's, oh, yeah, it's it's God, the God who loves us, the God who cares for us, the God who wants the best for us. That is the one to whom we are obedient. And so we need to be obedient in our present. And the last point, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is kind of a tricky one. Um, it's tricky because that word love, um, if we were in a grammar class, I would tell you love is an abstract noun. And even here, it's a verb, um, but that also doesn't help us. Um, because the thing is, it's like, what what does this mean? What does this look like? Well, luckily in the Bible, it tells us that this is what love looks like. John tells us this in his epistle. John says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. So that's really helpful. That's really good. It's like, okay, got that. But wait, what does that mean for us? If that's what love is, and I'm supposed to be loving God with all my heart, well, it's going to be really hard for me to die on a cross for God's sins when God never sinned. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So that doesn't go together. How can we lay down our lives for God? What does that mean? Especially, what about those of us who are living in a context where our faith isn't you know, a health risk, where we're not going to die because of what we believe in? Now, some people, there could be people here, right here today, there could be people who are listening through podcasts, where being a Christian really is a matter of life and death. Um, and so we affirm that, and we um, we know that. But for a lot of us, and I'll confess for myself personally, um, my beliefs have never been a risk to my life. So can I still love God in a way that is laying down my life? I think we can. I think we can. Because I think that it's about more than our physical life and death that we're laying down. It is every moment of our living life that we lay down to God. Um, I can lay down my life to God every single moment of every day. I can invite God in on every aspect of my life, and I can lay that down before Him and hear what He has to say about that. So I thought, you know, I'd give you guys a couple examples of how I personally do this. This, again, might be one of those things that looks different for you, and that's completely okay. But here's what I do. So what I do regularly is when I'm praying to God and I'm thinking about, you know, laying things down before him, hearing what he has to say about them, what I kind of imagine myself doing is holding those different things in my hand and handing them over to God and saying, here you go. I'm not super fancy when I pray, so I here you go. What do you think about that? You know, it's not really super holy language, What do you think, God? (laughs) What do you think about this? And one of the interesting things to notice is, you know, when do we hand something over? And we're kind of like hesitant. Like I've noticed that in myself. Sometimes I'm like, I don't really want to let this go. I don't really want to hand this over to God. And that's one of those times that I actually have to think about some of those other things we talked about today, like obedience. Like I need to be obedient in the present. But not only that, but remembering the past. Remembering who God is, remembering that God is trustworthy, remembering that handing something over to God doesn't mean I'm handing something over to a tyrant who's going to take away everything that I love and that I care about. I'm handing this over to the God who loves me. So this is a good thing. And so it's good to notice, when are we hesitant? Now, sometimes when I do this, God really surprises me. Sometimes he says exactly what I would suspect that he would say. Um, But I thought I'd give you guys a couple of examples that I've actually um, experienced with this. So right before I started seminary, um, so this was several summers ago. Um, I was praying to God. I was handing things over. And I got to this point where I was like, well, that's all I have for today. Like, what do you think, God? Like, is there is there more to add to this? And God kind of said to me, well, actually, yeah, can we talk about all the anxiety you're carrying around in your life? And I was like, what? I don't have any anxiety. <laughs> I was really like genuinely at first I was like what are you talking about? And God was like, "Yeah, so I've noticed that you seem to really just carry a lot of anxiety with you. Can we can we talk about that?" And as I was praying about it, what God really helped me see was that I was relying on anxiety to keep me motivated. Um I'm one of these people who is like they're called like goal oriented sorts of people. So I make a lot of goals. I really want to like achieve stuff and all that. Um, but what I didn't realize was that I was relying on fear and anxiety to motivate me. Cause it's like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid I'm gonna fail. I'm afraid I'm not gonna get this done. So like, gotta do it. Gotta like run from that. And what God said to me was, you know what, Vanessa? Anxiety, fear, like, that's not a good motivator. Like, that's actually not what's motivating you. That's not helping you. So let's, let's work on getting rid of that. And I was like, oh, okay. God, like Sometimes I'm like, wow, God, you're so wise, yes. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, another quick example for you, um, this is a little bit different, where I was handing over sort of my relationships. So one day, this was several years back now, um, I sort of handed over my relationship with my sister. Now, I love my sister so much that instantly, like, when I think about her, like, I just, I just start smiling, like, I can't help it, because she's amazing and funny and, like, the prettiest, smartest person you'll ever meet. And I'm not biased either. <laughs> she's awesome so you know i hand over my relationship with my sister to god i'm like okay you know how are we doing with this and god said well actually vanessa we need to work on a jealousy issue here um because you're actually pretty jealous of your sister and that's harming your relationship that's like poison in your relationship and again i was surprised i hadn't noticed this. this was something that sort of crept into my life and i was like oh and i mean i right away was just you know, heartbroken. I would never want to do something that would harm my relationship with my sister. And so I was like, yes, like, let's work on this. Like, I, I didn't even realize. And so we did. And, and that's a relationship I consistently hand over um, and just say to God, like, am I, am I being a good sister to Mariah? Um, not am I doing what I would want a sister to do for me, but am I being a good sister to her? Am I doing what she needs in this relationship? How does that look? And here's the thing, you guys. We're living lives, lives that are dynamic. Things are always changing. And so that's why we need to consistently sometimes hand over the exact same things. Maybe today this relationship is working. but Maybe tomorrow it isn't. Things are constantly growing and changing and moving. So we can't just say, oh, yeah, I handed everything over to God. I'm done with that. No, we have to do it daily and say, here you go, Lord. What, what do you think? What are your, what's your perspective on this? And When we do this, we grow in our faithfulness. So when we remember the past... Remember who came before us. Remember what the Lord has done. We grow in faithfulness. When we are obedient in our present, we grow in our faithfulness. We grow strong. We're like athletes who, you know, train and they get muscle and they build up their endurance. We are building up our faith muscles and our faith endurance. So when we're obedient in the present, and when we lay everything before God, when we lay our entire lives over to God, we grow in our faithfulness. And when we grow like this, and we get stronger and stronger in our faithfulness, then when temptation and testing come our way, we are prepared. We are prepared to imitate Christ and say, no, Satan, actually, I'm not interested in your offer. You can leave now. So, thank you. Um, I'm going to close this with a word of prayer. And as I do, I'd like to call the prayer teams up. If you are in need for prayer, for anything whatsoever, please come up after the service and pray with these people. They would love to pray for you. And I'm going to close this in prayer right now. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for every single person who is here. Lord, I pray that you would just be continuing to work in our lives. God, I pray that you would take whatever part of this message is of you and you would just continue to speak it to these people. God, I pray that you would help us to learn to be creative in learning more about you. God, that you would teach us different ways that we can engage our faith more. And God, that you would continue to grow us in our faith. And Lord, that you would prepare us to be ready like strong athletes for testing and for temptation. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done, all that you are doing right now, and for everything that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything disappears When yeah. i wish.